The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, April the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. So now we know that the scheduled date for the UK's departure from the European Union has been pushed back to October the 31st. But what impact does this new time frame have on the politics of the UK, of Ireland, and indeed of the EU as a whole? We will be joined in a little while by Fintan O'Toole to discuss some of this. But first with me in studio, our political editor, Pat Leahy. Bonjour. And on the line, our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Hello, Hugh. Hi, Dennis. I'll go to you first. This So we have six months now. Um, the impression I'm getting looking across the water today is that there's sort of just a sigh of exhaustion, perhaps not relief, but at least that the opportunity to take a breath um, for, for a week or so before everybody returns to the fray. Yeah, I think that's though mainly because everybody at Westminster is so exhausted and it really is impossible to overstate just how exhausted everybody is. They've been at it since uh, really the beginning of the year. They were supposed to have a week off in February, which was cancelled. And then the uh, the Easter recess has already been shortened. So uh, you know, they've had all these late sittings and death threats and all kinds of things going on. So, uh, so they really just need a break, the MPs, because they can't think straight anymore. And so they, uh, so that's mainly the relief there. I think where the extension is concerned, certainly there's relief that uh, Britain uh, is not leaving the European Union tonight with no deal. But on the other hand, I think that the extension is actually the worst of both worlds. Uh, when they were arguing about it in Brussels the other night, there were two proposals really made. One was from uh, the majority, uh, led by Angela Merkel, who was suggesting you should have a long extension, maybe even up to the end of March 2020, because that would allow the British political system to work itself out and to have a real think about this and maybe to have a general election so you'd have a different uh, House of Commons that would be able to make a decision more easily or that you maybe have a second referendum. But it would give time for something new to happen. And then Emmanuel Macron's argument was, no, the danger is that if you don't just give them a short extension and you you take the pressure off them and you also give the impression that uh, the Europeans are afraid of a no-deal exit and that's uh, and we'll end up dancing to the British tune rather than the other way around. And what they ended up with was this fudge of six months, which is actually the worst of all these worlds, because uh, immediately what you've seen is that both sides of the debate here think that it gives them a chance to get what they want. The Brexiteer side think that uh, this that the EU has shown weakness, and so what they have to do is to just go over and be tougher, reopen the withdrawal agreement, because the Europeans will do anything rather than risk a no-deal Brexit. And then on the other side, the second referendum people think that they've got time to have a second referendum. So nobody has any incentive to move at all. Pat? Yeah, um, I, I wonder... If though the, 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 the there isn't, uh, it's not just a tactical difference between the uh, the French position that we saw the other night and um, and the German position, which is also, I think, the position held by most uh, by most people. Certainly, was on the council the other night and by Donald Tusk, and he actually said it during the uh, uh, during I think the press conference later, which is that I I, I think 
the French probably want the British out. And if that takes a no deal, so be it. And the Germans, I think, and certainly Donald Tusk, believes that they might yet change their mind and stay in. Um, And so in that respect, I think one of the important things that we saw the other night was not just that that fudge was agreed, but also for the first time, quite serious division on the EU side as to how it dealt with it. Now, I wouldn't overstate that because ultimately the EU has agreed a position and it will stick to that. But at the same time, uh, I I, I think a couple of important things happened the other night and I think that was one of them. And Dennis, does that perception give added hope to the Brexiteer side then? The the first side? Because there has always been this dream on that side that sooner or later the the unity of the EU would would fracture or, or come apart. Yeah, I think what the Brexiteers are hoping and the DUP as well, Nigel Dodds in the House of Commons yesterday was saying, you know, uh, the, the the Europeans said that they weren't weren't going to give um, Mrs. May an extension unless she had a clear plan, that she was clearly going to do something different, that she didn't really have a plan. And so they backed down in the face of no deal. What, they, what they're all hoping, the Brexiteers, is that although there probably may not be time for a general election, you certainly would have time for a Conservative leadership election. And although Theresa May is uh, officially immune from another confidence vote within the Conservative Party until December, the fact is that if the leading figures in the party were to go to her, uh, for for example, after European elections in May, if if those went very badly, and say, look, you've got to go, then she would have to go. And the uh, Brexit here dream would be that one of their number, say Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab, would become the new leader and would be elected to the Conservative leadership on a mandate to go back to Brussels and to say, this withdrawal agreement will not do. You've got to rip the backstop out. We have to have a completely new arrangement. And if you don't want that, then we're leaving with no deal and we'll just take our chances uh, outside the European Union without this agreement. And that's a pretty plausible scenario, isn't it? Because surely there is no doubt at all that the Tories are going to do dreadfully in the European election. Yeah, if they get so, I think if she goes ahead, you know, if, if they don't do a deal before then, uh, and uh, and they have European elections, it's pretty clear they're going to do badly, and it's a PR system which means that uh, new entrants like, for example, the Brexit party na- launched by Nigel Farage today uh, should be able to do well. Other groups like the independent group uh, now called Change UK might do well. And then there's a chance that the Labour vote might just hold up. So the, the Conservative losses could look uh, very bad. And uh, and so, uh, so it would certainly offer a good uh, opportunity to say that, uh, that Theresa May has to go. And I think there's, uh, you know, uh, you know, while some of the candidates, the potential candidates to succeed her, don't like the idea of taking over before Brexit is done. Because, I mean, the whole idea of um, Theresa May hanging on was that she could be used as uh, a scapegoat in the traditional and literal biblical sense where you pile all of the sins of the city onto her back and then drive her out of the city. And uh, the problem is that until the Brexit is resolved, uh, you know, the new leader is going to have to take that over. And it's going to be difficult one way or another, because it is a very difficult, you know, in the, in the current parliamentary arithmetic, no matter what they do, it's going to be difficult to make it happen. Isn't it likely, Dennis, that after MPs come back from the Easter break, that she will make another attempt 
to get her withdrawal agreement through either with or without uh, an agreement with Labour. That It's at that point that, you know, her decisive period will come That and, and she will either get that through, which seems to me is probably unlikely, though not impossible, and then she goes or she doesn't get it through, at which stage I would wonder, is she not at the end of the road then anyway? I think that's right, yeah. And I think you're also right that she that that's exactly what she's going to do. In fact, she more or less said so yesterday that she said to go off and uh, use the recess to ponder what you ought to be doing about Brexit, which I'm sure is exactly what they're all doing. But she, uh, anyway... Along is, with a long list of hitherto neglected domestic chores, if my experience <laughs> is anything to go by. Indeed, a lot of bins have not been taken out for a long time. But uh, so anyway, so she uh, will come back uh, after the recess. And the, 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 the curious thing about these talks with Labour is that although looking from the outside, it's very hard to see how they can come uh, unite around a single position just because the cost to each of the parties would be so great to do so. So in other words, both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn would have to be willing to split their party to find a compromise with the other side. And it you just you know you can't see really where the motive motivation to do that is. But on the other hand, the talks clearly are serious and uh, they you know and they are talking about substantive things and they're not leaking. And the people who are leading the talks, David Liddington on the conservative side and Keir Starmer on the Labour side, are very serious people. So you saw you caught a glimpse of where they might be going uh, in Parliament yesterday when Theresa May was talking about the customs union and uh, Labour's big demand is that uh, that Britain should remain in a customs union with the European Union. And what they say is that it should be a customs union with a say over trade policy. And she's been saying, well, actually, my uh, withdrawal agreement and the deal that I'm looking for, that has... Uh, all the benefits of a customs union, but we'd still be able to have our independent trade policy. And the other day in Brussels, uh, Leo Varadkar suggested that, uh, you know, it's possible because Britain is special and it's big, that maybe you could have something like a customs union with a say, you know, something like what Jeremy Corbyn is looking for. And it was clear that he meant to be helpful to the British. And Downing Street understood that his motivation was to be helpful. But they weren't quite clear exactly what he was getting at. But where what she was talking about yesterday was that uh, actually they were quite close on the customs union. And a lot of it is a question of language, that if you were to change the language around customs union, that somehow you would find possibly that the two sides could agree on actually what they were looking for. So that was the kind of thing which you, you, know, you wouldn't really expect to hear unless they thought they were going for something. So there's a chance that they find some kind of common position, but it's probably still unlikely. What's more likely is, I think, that they agree on a limited series of options, which they would then put to uh, the House of Commons in another series of indicative votes. I was quite struck by Faradkar's intervention on that because I, uh, along with some of my colleagues, schlepped from the EU uh, Council headquarters down to the EPP headquarters. The where, European People's Party. Yeah, where, where Varadkar was meeting with other EPP leaders, including Angela Merkel. And he came over to do... Um, uh, to do a doorstep 
uh, with a bunch of journalists there, notwithstanding the fact that we, we couldn't hear words that he said because of the helicopter that habitually shadows Mrs. Merkel was overhead. But um, when we cleaned up the audio on it, he came out with this kind of unprompted, this idea of a new form of customs union. And he specifically said where the British would have a say in it. And Later then, after the EPP meeting, uh, he he went, when he was coming into the council venue, he went over to the British media. He had already done his bit with the Irish media at the EPP. He went over to the British media and again sought them out and specifically said this. So it was very clearly something that he wanted to put out there. Now, I asked Irish officials if this was something that he had discussed with any other member states beforehand? Was it something that they were trying to cook up? And I got a very watery and non-committal and non-informed response on it. But it it was a very deliberate uh, insertion into the debate. So I think that, you know, I think that Dennis might have been onto something there when he says, you know, that this is something that is now circulating in Westminster as well. But Dennis, that begs the question, not not for the first time. I mean, should there be some positive outcome from those talks between between um, the Conservatives and Labour, or whether through a kind of a, a further indicative vote process or through an agreement. Um, the scenario which you outlined earlier, the one about a, a new Conservative leader, a Dominic Raab or a Bonif- Boris Johnson, obviously from Labour's perspective, you would need to put into, into law, I suppose, something that would guard against them rowing back on that, would you not? Yes. And that's one of the things that they plan to do. Now, of course, you can't bind the hands of a future parliament. uh, uh, But what you can do is that you can uh, bind the hands of the uh, of the next leader before the parliament. So this is the so-called Boris Locke, as they're calling it. And that is one thing that um, that uh, that the two sides are talking about. A lot of this uh, stuff will be put into the Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill, which is the piece of legislation that you need to implement the the Brexit deal. And one of the things that Theresa May uh, indicated yesterday was that she'd probably bring this bill in very quickly as soon as they get back after Easter. The idea initially was that you pass the Withdrawal Agreement through a meaningful vote, and that then you introduce this legislation. She seemed to be suggesting that what you might do is to do it the other way around, that you uh, bring in the withdrawal agreement bill and and you could then put in some of these safeguards into the bill. And the other thing you could do with the bill is that actually, instead of having the same indicative votes process that you did before, that you would actually uh, use amendments to the bill to do that. So, for example, Labour could propose an amendment to the uh, you know, backing a customs union, and maybe the Conservatives would either oppose it or offer a free vote on it, but maybe it would get through anyway. And then maybe Labour would be backing an amendment calling for a second referendum, but maybe that wouldn't get through. And yet they they had fought the good fight and they had done it. Now, the problem with all of this is that when you then get to the, uh, you know, the final uh, you know, motion on the bill itself, you have to wonder whether, say, all those second referendum people on the Labour side would be prepared to vote for a deal that actually a bill that actually does make Brexit happen, even if it's a softer Brexit than the one mm-hmm. that Theresa May wanted, especially if they think they can still get their reversal of Brexit, which they do. Along, so along think, with all those anti-customs union people on the Tory side. Exactly. So, so in other words, that. is this kind of centre for find a majority? 
Exactly. And in fact, the interesting thing is, you know, one of the reasons that the uh, customs union advocates think they're close to victory is because in the last round of indicative votes, that lost by just three votes. But in the last round, the government was told, the, you know, some ministers and people on the payroll were told to abstain. And if they were all to vote, more of them are opposed to the customs union that are in, are in favour of it. So it could lose by a larger margin. And that gets to the fundamental problem with everything. Right. Which is that neither the Conservatives nor Labour have any party discipline. And you saw uh, when uh, earlier this week the the vote on uh, on an extension to Article 50, uh, one third, just about one third of the Conservative Party members voted in favour of the government's motion. So it was passed on opposition votes. And in the same way, Jeremy Corbyn can't. Uh, whip his people efficiently either. So even if both leaders were to endorse a particular option, there's no guarantee it would go through. Dennis, we're going to have to let you go because I know you haven't put your bins out for months either. So you're going to take a well-earned break as well. But thanks for joining us. Pat's going to stick with us. You're listening to The Irish Times. So Pat, you were raising your eyebrows at uh, Dennis's... um no, I, outline uh, of well, how things might pan out over the next few weeks. Only, only to, to this extent. I mean, the, the the pathway through the minefield that Dennis articulated there is is certainly plausible. The difficulty with it, I think, is uh, not in its design, but that it it requires very nimble political footwork by. Mrs. May, uh, which has not, uh, to say the least of it, uh, been characteristic of her approach so far. I don't think she has been tiptoeing through anything that we've seen of her so far suggests that tiptoeing through political minefields uh, is not quite her forte, rather dashing through them in snowshoes. So, Pat, turning to our own our own dear homeland, um, this has all kinds of implications, doesn't it, for the stuff we've been talking about for months now about Brexit preventing certain things happening, most notably a general election. Yeah, it does. And I think if there was, you know, uh, if a long extension had been uh, agreed uh, the other uh, the other night, it might have given impetus to you know, the momentum behind a general election. I mean, what lots of people say to me in government is that they're waiting for an, uh, for. An election. I think that if we didn't have Brexit, and we've discussed this here before, if we didn't have the roadblock of Brexit, we would have had an election by now. Um, I think that the fact that it remains unresolved and that the resolution is in the middle distance or the potential resolution is, as it has been previously, still in the middle distance means that a general election here is, uh, uh, is, is not feasible so it's off the table. Immediately. I think there are two ways that, and the reason I believe this, as I've said before, is that I don't, I think either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael were to prompt, were either of them to prompt a general election, they would be quite justifiably accused of colossal political irresponsibility at a crucial time in Brexit. We've been saying this for six months, but it's been, it was as true now as it is then, but at a time of maximum uncertainty. So what happens with Brexit? Um, I think they would be accused of irresponsibility were they to leave the, uh, not just call an election, but when the consequences of that is potentially the uh, countries without a definite stable government uh, for a period of months while uh, a new administration would be put together. I think that's I think that's the reason why we said last autumn there couldn't be a general election last autumn, and I think it's still true uh, it's still true now. 
There are two circumstances, though, I think, in which uh, uh, in which a general election, the, the, the window could be opened, if you like, for uh, a general election. And uh, they both relate to what we were speaking uh, with Dennis about a few minutes ago. Uh, the first is that Mrs May comes back from her, um, uh, comes back after the Easter break, puts another attempt to get through, uh, to, 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 to get the withdrawal uh, agreement through the House of Commons before MPs, with or without Labour support, and somehow she manages to do it, either by dint of um, uh, either by dint of a deal with Labour or a rethink on a sufficient on the part of a sufficient number of Tory MPs allied to the support of a small number of of Labour MPs. I don't think that's likely, but it's not at all. Uh, it's not implausible uh, that that uh, that that could happen. And I think if that did happen. That gives you certainty. The withdrawal agreement is passed. The UK is then out under the terms of the uh, the decision of the European Council the other night. You have this standstill period for the, the implementation period. That clears the decks. And I think in those circumstances, a general election here uh, suddenly becomes very likely. The, the alternative way, I think, in which a window could be opened for an election here over the coming weeks is that uh, Mrs May comes back, puts her deal is roundly defeated again. And at that stage, she holds up her hands and says, I have done all I can do here. Uh, Our party needs a new leader or perhaps we need a new parliament. I will resign on the 1st of July or 1st of June or whatever it is to allow uh, a new leader to be in place or perhaps a new parliament In, in, in a way that kind of pauses the uncertainty in British politics for the summer and would open up, uh, I, I suppose, the autumn for almost a restart of the Brexit process um, fr- on there's, the British there's, side. There's a sort of an implication in that that there would be a further extension, that that would have to lead to a further extension. Because not you'd nec- have this not, political not, not interregnum involving an election, a leadership contest, whatever else, and you really only get back to, back to the business at hand uh, well after the summer. Well, yeah, but that wouldn't be a decision, I think, that would be made. I mean, you're, you're probably right, but that wouldn't be a decision that would be made until the autumn. I'm talking about, you know, in, in, in you know, the middle of, uh, if this happens in the middle of May, that I think that then uh, probably a smaller window opens for a general election here. I think if uh, Fine Gael did well in uh, the European uh, elections and particularly the local elections, which are more important for the placement of candidates and judgment of strength on the ground. And remember that Fine Gael did not have a good local elections in 2014 with the result that there are some, there is some uh, low-hanging for fruit for them, so to speak, to make electoral gains. They could become the largest party of local government Again, that would be presented as a very significant victory for Mr. Varadkar in his first national test, his first national poll. And I think if those other conditions were fulfilled, I think we could be into an election here in uh, in June. OK, stick with us for a sec. We're going to be joined by Fintan O'Toole. Fintan O'Toole, you're very welcome. Thanks, you. Um, one of the things that struck me just while we had the mic switched off, I was asking Pat about the prospect of endless Brexit extensions, you know, tapering off in for years, if not if not decades into the future. And as a result, everything else frozen, including Irish politics, you know, for that matter. And I was reminded of your piece last weekend um, in which you compared you compared the whole process, the Brexit process to the third policeman, the moment in which a character realises that actually they're in hell. 
Yeah, yeah, which is, of course, is a terrible spoiler people have been giving out to me. They said, I haven't read this third policeman, and now you've ruined it for me. Uh, but, I think we should uh, still read it anyway. haven't ruined Brexit for people because uh, people kind of are beginning to realize. Remember, Donald Tusk actually said uh, that there was a special place in hell for those who had um, pushed forward Brexit without having a plan. Um, but I, I, I begin to feel that it's not so much a special place in hell as a special time in hell, you know, that the... The, the weird nature of Brexit is that it's it's both dead on arrival, so it actually really ended on June 24th, 2016. You know, as soon as it made contact with reality, it was over because it had no possibility of fulfilling itself. And yet, the irony is, it's this thing that's over, but 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 will never end. You know, uh, so it has this kind of strange quality to it um, that 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 you know it, it it can't go anywhere, and yet it can't be killed off. I mean, it, it really is a zombie project. Well, it's certainly a zombie project, or seems to be for the moment, anyway, in the context of British politics. But in the context of European politics, I mean, what I think one of the things that we saw this week was an attempt to assert agency over some of these elements. I mean, particularly and probably for a number of reasons by a man. Emmanuel Macron, who seems to be a man in a hurry and doesn't want to sit in his arse for the next three years waiting for Britain to make up its mind. Yeah, I mean, Macron has sort of ambitious plans for remaking the European Union. Um, you know, he's he's hoping that uh, he can really drive forward um, a sort of integrationist agenda, you know, which sort of um, makes the European Union look more and more like a kind of federal union. Um, and in that sense, you know, if, if, if that's the way you're thinking, then obviously having everybody focused on Brexit for the next year or two years or three years uh, really isn't the way that you want to go. Um, it, it's, it's striking because this really is the first time that we've seen a breach in European unity. Um, I mean, which of us would have said in June 2016 that, you know, what we're going to see over over the next few years is the European Union actually acting very coherently and, and you know, the, the union bit of the European Union really meaning something. And Brexit had this kind of very paradoxical effect that it, it looked like something that was going to be the beginning of the end of the European Union. And actually, partly because Brexit itself has been such a disaster for the British, uh, it, it's actually kind of consolidated the European Union in some ways. And this has been hugely to Ireland's advantage, of course. I mean, if you if you step back from the thing, the whole um, idea behind the British strategy, if, if one is not flattering it too much to call it a strategy, but the whole idea was that you could engage in old-fashioned diplomacy and you could pick off one European country against another. You could say they all, they all have different interests. Uh, some of them trade a lot with Britain, some of them don't. And so we can we can divide and conquer. That was really the way the British approached this thing. And it didn't work. I mean, it was a total disaster. You know, the reason why the British got nowhere was because Europe actually remained extraordinarily coherent. And this was the first time then, you know, this sort of breach between Merkel and, and Macron, or indeed between Macron and everybody else uh, over how to deal with the, the request for an extension. It's the first time we've seen that kind of breach. And I think it's also a breach, though, between... A certain kind of pragmatism that's that's the the core of the European Union, which Merkel, I suppose, represents, you know, which is, look, let, let's stop dreaming about European integration. Uh, we have enough problems to be dealing with right now. Uh, and Macron, who's, who's sort of, you know, has a, a touch of the old kind of Gallic, um, you know, de Gaulle, Mitterrand, um, 
impulse, you know, to put France back at the heart of a, of, of a new and growing Europe. Um, uh, the pragmatism, I think, wins out uh, at the moment. The problem is that, see, in one way, Macron's right. So whatever you think about his strategy, Macron is the one who's kind of looking at this and saying the European Union is in big trouble. And just because Brexit looks like such a total screw up, it doesn't mean the European Union is okay. The European Union has to have a sense of urgency. It has to have a sense of the possibility of its own demise and start moving forward rapidly. Whereas everybody else is saying, oh, look, you know, the, the Brits have kind of helped us out here. They've made the European Union look good, look, look very coherent and very united. Let's, let's just deal with this Brexit thing and then we can move on to other things. And so whether you agree with Macron or not about his particular strategy, you know, that Macron has a kind of point, you know, that, 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 that the problem with Brexit in a way is not just all the problems that we're dealing with in, in, in the Irish case. It's, it's, it's that it's actually led to an unjustified complacency on the part of the European Union. Anything looks good compared to Brexit, but that doesn't mean that it is particularly good. The European Union has absolutely profound problems. You know, the euro, the, the misdesign of the euro has not gone away. It's, it's, it's one crisis away from, from, from returning to haunt us. Um, Hungary, you know, the, the whole, the, the, you know, that you've got a European Union member state, which has now completely abandoned the absolute core principles of it. So, you know, there, there are numerous major problems. And, and and simply saying, well, thank God we're not the Brits is, is not an answer to them. <clears throat> sure, and there's a, there's an awful lot in that, Pat, but um, one among the things that strike me about that is that obviously one real politics situation is that uh, Angela Merkel it will be leaving uh, in the not-too-distant yeah. <clears throat> future, and therefore, like any political leader who, after they've made that announcement, her power is ebbing away, so the, the dynamics change to some extent. From a more parochial uh, Irish point of view, there's this very broad question of post-Brexit EU and what are the dynamics there between integrationists and pragmatists as Finton characterises them. Our greatest ally in this in the past was the British. Um, who are our allies now and what are the dynamics at play in terms of deciding who wins? I mean, Macron was on it. You were there on Wednesday. Macron was ultimately on his own in making in making this stand, wasn't he? Yeah, and... Actually, it's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm trying to write a column about for tomorrow. I think one of the significant things, one of the really significant things to happen the other night, I mean, obviously, there's the short-term decisions made. We're not going to have a crash-out Brexit tonight at, uh, at 11 o'clock. And, of course, um, that's important. But to, to, to me, trying to step back from it and look at it with a wider lens, I think that one of the significant things to happen the other night was that assertion of himself by uh, uh, by... Uh, Emmanuel Macron and you know there's there's politics you know in in its most you know kind of raw sense in a way at play here Merkel for so long the dominant force not just in European politics but on the council um you know p- p- people who've observed that at close quarters uh, would have said that, you know, her way of operating was, you know, to get other people to make the arguments, to let the discussion play out and then to weigh in at the end, you know, with a with with a pre-cooked consensus that suited, you know, her view of things and and uh, and her interests. And she has not just by dint of 
the size of Germany and its economic heft, but because of her experience, because of her longevity, because of her political abilities, she's been the dominant force of the European Council for a long, long time now. But she is going. She's in the last phase of her career, and that must mean something for the power dynamics of the European Council. And the way the Council works is it's a special case in terms of European decision-making. So, for example, when a minister goes to the Council of Ministers, he sits around the table with the other 27, but his officials are sitting behind him, they're passing him notes, they're reminding him of his positions, they're making, uh, they're making suggestions, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's much more a, a, an official process than a nakedly political process. Whereas at the Council meeting, it's just the 27 leaders in there, along with Jean-Claude Juncker and, so, and, and Donald Tusk and so forth. So the actual deal-making is a lot more raw politic and personal politically than it is uh, in, most, uh, in, 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 in most of the ways that the, the EU makes decisions. So personalities matter. And that intervention by Macron to hold out, I mean, you know, we were getting missives and trying to pick up what was going on inside in the council uh, chamber until the early hours. But it seems, and it's borne out by lots of reports and first-hand uh, accounts since, that it was Macron stood out on his own against that consensus. So there was a read at one stage, I think about midnight, that the vast majority of people, I think it was 17 leaders, were strongly in favour of a long extension. Uh, there was four, I think, who were in favour of a shorter extension, but were uh, content to bow to the consensus of a longer um, of, of, uh, of a longer extension. And there was one, just one, Macron, who was holding out for, uh, for a short extension. And I think one of the things that means, and it means all of those things are implications in terms of, you know, the post-Merkel EU and the post-Brexit EU and the implications that has for Ireland, particularly when you think of the sort of ideas that uh, Emmanuel Macron has been putting forward in recent months about Which would give most EU. Irish politicians the heebie-jeebies. Uh, very much so with things like European Army, taxation, uh, EU budget and all those, uh, Eurozone budget, all those, all those sort of things which just set off alarm bells in, in, in Dublin and the Department of Finance particularly. But one of the results, you know, to go back to that personal element in the decision-making process, what will happen at the next EU summit, much more, I think, than previous EU summits, is now everybody will look not just to Merkel, to see what she wants, but they will look at Macron to see what he will do. And that's a big change. Now, listening to Pat there, Fintan, it strikes me that, I mean, it's, it's, it's self-evident, it seems to me, that uh, even though there are 27 members of the EU now, as opposed to the, the six of the original, the original group, that core dynamic there, the French-German dynamic, is still the single most powerful dynamic. And because it's slightly in flux at the moment, because of, because of the departure by Merkel, there is an opportunity or maybe a perceived opportunity for Macron on behalf of France, which more often than not because of its its other difficulties has been the junior partner there, to, to seize the day perhaps. And, you know, there are important decisions coming up about who the next president is going to be and, and having an influence over those could be, it could be a sort of a, a key moment in, Fre in a French attempt to maybe reassert some primacy in that dynamic. Yeah, you know, and, and this is very important stuff for Ireland. Um, you know, one of the great difficulties, I mean, we're, we know all about the border, we know about the economic stuff, but I, I don't think we've thought a lot about precisely the question you're raising, which is 
is what is a a post-Brexit European dynamic like? And remember, having the Brits there was brilliant for all the small countries. You know, all the small countries were actually very glad to have the Brits there because it meant you had a third big player as well as France and Germany. Um, so because historically the European Union, you know, going back to the common market, was so much a kind of Franco-German alliance with other bits added on, the, the Brits kind of acted very much as um, a, a sort of a, gave a kind of leverage to other other small countries, you know, who could, if you could make an alliance with the British, you know, it, it just meant the whole power dynamic was was more complicated and, and could be exploited in different ways by small countries. The British leaving it's not just about the British leaving, it also kind of fundamentally upsets that balance. And it, 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 exactly as you say, it pushes it back into this kind of core dynamic of France and Germany. And in one way, um, I, I think it's in our interests and in the interests of most of the small countries to see tension between France and Germany, right? So uh, that actually at least means then you can kind of play you know, your own hand in, in relation to that tension. The problem is if 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 you get um, France and Germany completely, um, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet, it it, it becomes coercive and it becomes overwhelming. Um, I think there's good reason to think that there will be continuing tension between the French and the Germans. So, the French, uh, I think, I think you know, as I said, for have a kind of logic in saying and recognizing the euro is a huge problem, you know. So if you just stand back from this, the, the, the big underlying problem for the European Union is that they created the euro, they pushed ahead with it as a political project, they created a currency union without a political union of, of real substance to back it up, right? So so they were trying to do something that has never been done before and it doesn't really work, you know. So, so there's a complete logic if you are the French in saying there's a huge problem with the euro and the logic of the euro is we have to follow on from having the single currency to moving towards a much more integrated governance, you know, uh, which actually does move towards policies on taxation, um, on redistribution of, 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 of wealth throughout the, the European Union. You know, the European Union has to become much more like a political entity. The Germans, on the other hand, don't see a problem with the euro because the Germans are the ones who have benefited overwhelmingly from the euro. I mean, the euro has given the German economy an incredible boost because it's meant that the Germans are trading with an international currency that is valued very significantly below where the Deutschmark as an independent currency would be. German products are, 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 are cheaper and more competitive on the world market. Um, and so the Germans have been the great beneficiaries from the euro. The French, like everybody else, um, you know, are stuck with the the contradictions and the incomplete nature of the euro project. So you have a kind of underlying dynamic, I think, which is that the Germans are not particularly unhappy with the current state of European governance, and the French are particularly unhappy with it. Now, where does Ireland stand in relation to all of this? So if you look at the, you know, the last couple of years, have been absolutely remarkable in particular for the degree of German solidarity with Ireland. I mean, you know, and if you just look at this, you know, just, just less than a fortnight ago, I mean, Angela Merkel coming to Dublin, you know, it's very interesting, the dynamic. Uh, Leo Varadkar had to go to Macron in France. Merkel came to Ireland and not just came to Ireland, but went to the border and talked to people and, you know, wanted to be seen to be taking the Irish issue as a German issue. And this has been absolutely remarkable. It's been a huge underlying dynamic of Brexit, right? So if you 
if you go back to the madness that was in the British mind, right, the British mind was the European Union is really just the Germans. It's a front for German domination. Therefore, as David Davis, when he was Brexit secretary, repeatedly said, this deal will not be done in Brussels. It will be done in Berlin. You know, in the last phases of this, we'll get together in a room with Angela Merkel. We'll, you know, we'll tell the Irish, you know, the game's over. Just shut up. Take what you're given. It'll all be sorted out. The German car manufacturers will, will want us to have cake and eat cake. And that's that was the whole dynamic of the British strategy. Right. But it, that, that, they, that was what, that was based, wasn't it, Fintan, on a, a, a misreading of the importance of the EU as a peace project exactly, to the Germans. Exactly, so while the Germans, exactly. you know, the, 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 nothing is more important to the Germans, you know, to reduce this than selling BMWs to the UK, apart from one thing, and that's avoiding war in Europe in future. And so, you know, the German economy comes second fiddle to the politics for the Germans. And that's the thing that the, e, or that the UK misread uh, about it. However, I, I, I'd wonder, be interested to see what you think of this, that, that I, I'm not sure how far we would be wise to push that in terms of asking Germany or assuming Germany will work against its own economic interests in terms of the future direction of the UK. And that's maybe where it gets interesting now, doesn't it? Finally, yeah. that, that, that even those misplaced assumptions in the UK, you know, every misplaced assumption has a kernel of truth where it came from and, you know, at the start. And maybe that's emerging now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, that, you know, for, 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 for Ireland, this is a very, very difficult question. You know, I, I mean, the Irish thing has always been, you know, to ride as many horses simultaneously as you possibly can, you know, uh, and we've been we've been in the British circles, we've been in the American circles, and we've been in the European circles. The American circles are getting very, very, very dodgy, you know, with, 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 with Trump. Um, you know, Trump is not interested in sort of a sentimental attachment to Ireland, you know, to put it mildly. Uh, the British thing is, is, is imploding. And so we're, we're finding ourselves um, having to, to be mono rather than quadraphonic, if you know what I mean. Like, so we're, we're going to have to operate on a, on a European channel, and I don't think we quite know how to do that. I, I don't think we quite know what is the dynamic of, of, of Europe pushing ahead, because the dynamic of Europe pushing ahead, as far as Macron is concerned, is you know, a, a very integrationist kind of strategy. And it's, it's one that the, the Irish corporate tax rate, for example, is just uh, unsustainable in, in that context. Well, well, indeed. And just a final, if you wouldn't mind, relatively brief word, Pat, on that. How does this impact on the positioning of the Irish government over the next, next few months? I mean, look, uh, you know, I think that there's no question uh, at this stage anyway of the withdrawal agreement being reopened. I don't think there'll be any serious pressure uh, to do that, to do that. Um, what I think we will see, though, is, and to some extent this has been taking place behind uh, closed doors, I expect it will become a little bit more public, is the ratcheting up of the uh, of no-deal preparations, especially as they uh, relate to what happens on or at the border or near the border inter- uh, when, when Ireland's obligation to 
protect the single market, um, uh, as, as the saying goes, is considered. I mean, the, the, the difficulty for the government in recent weeks is that um, I think the European Commission especially has been requiring a lot more detail, a lot more planning from the Irish government about what it would do in, uh, in terms of border checks or checks on goods, uh, wherever they take place, that are, uh, that are crossing the border. I think, you know, we'll see an intensification of that over the summer because I think that everybody will use the six months between now and October to be ready for a no-deal if that happens. There's no question that Ireland was ready for uh, a no-deal on the 29th of March, the original date. It wasn't, but I think that the European Commission especially will require us to be ready for that to happen at the end of October. Right, we, shall, we shall leave it there. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Pat to Finton and to Dennis for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be, and you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening.